Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. On April 4th, Wisconsin will hold an election to replace Justice Patience Rogensack, a retiring conservative, on the Supreme Court. The result could upend the court's ideological balance. Janet Prusewitz, a circuit court judge in Milwaukee, is cur- currently facing off with Daniel Kelly, former state Supreme Court justice who was appointed by Scott Walker in 2016 to fill a vacancy uh, in 2020, he lost a bid for re-election. Already the most expensive judicial campaign in U.S. history, the race is expected to cost more than $40 million, most of it spent on by outside groups. The outcome, according to our guest today, could reshape the court, an institution that has helped transform Wisconsin into what has been called a democracy desert, a place where voters stand little chance of affecting effecting political change. Joining us today is journalist Dan Kaufman. He's the author of the just-published New Yorker magazine article entitled A High-Stakes Election in the Midwest's Democracy Desert. With deep Madison roots and Wisconsin ties, Dan has long reported on the state's political terrain. He's the author of the 2018 title, The Fall of Wisconsin, The Conservative Conquest of a Progressive Bastion and the Future of American Politics. It's one of the, uh, in my opinion anyway, one of the better examinations of what transpired in the state following the ascent of Scott Walker to the Wisconsin governor's office in 2011. Dan Kaufman, welcome back to WRT and A Public Affair. Thank you, Alan. It's it's really a pleasure to be back. I, I love the station and grew up loving it, so I, I'm really honored. Thank you. You know, Dan, appearing two days ago in, in the latest New Yorker magazine, your piece on Wisconsin's high-stakes Supreme Court race has a pr- provocative subtitle. It reads, The Race for Control of Wisconsin's Supreme Court could change the course of the entire country. Now, that claim, when I first read it, that claim might seem a bit hyperbolic to many of our listeners, as it did me um, and your readers. So let's cut to the chase. In a sense, let's turn the whole thing around and talk. Why do, why do you think that be the case, that it could uh, affect the course of the entire country? Well, one reasons. Um, one is um, the state is the most pivotal swing state in the country. As you know, in 2016, it was one of three states that were the tipping point in the election. And it was also uh, that it played that same role in 2020. And it's the only state that was pivotal in both elections. Um, for some reason, Wisconsin is right on the fulcrum of so. And that is one important reason, because as uh, probably many of your listeners know, Wisconsin came within one vote on the Wisconsin State Supreme Court of throwing out the election results in the 2024 election, which could have caused a massive amount of chaos, especially given the January 6th, um, what was happening in terms of that, and might have cascaded quite widely if um, these elections had been thrown out. The argument from Trump's lawyer, Jim Troopas, was that only votes in uh, Dane and Milwaukee counties, which are the state's largest and most democratic leaning, uh, had violated these uh, whatever election uh, fraud they were claiming, even though the procedures, mainly it was around drop boxes, were being used in every county in the state. It was a bizarre argument. And as I say in the piece, Wisconsin Supreme Court was the only state Supreme Court in the country, and there were seven in all that even held a hearing on this, let alone came within one vote of overturning the election. Um, and that, that vote was by Brian Hagedorn, but largely on procedural grounds that the c- case was filed too late. So I think for that reason alone, it's pivotal. 
But I also think Wisconsin, both in its earlier progressive iteration, um, the La Follette years, it was a laboratory for democracy, workers' compensation, the first uh, recognition of public employees' trade union. It's, it was a model, in a sense. And then in 2011, it became a model for the right um, with the election of uh, Scott Walker, and particularly with Act 10 and the gerrymandering. So I think that is potentially going to turn. Democrats and progressives have won the past 14 of 17 elections. And this particular election could put a crack in the gerrymandering. Janet Protasewicz has said publicly that she thinks the maps are rigged and there will certainly be a case brought uh, probably by Law Forward, among other groups, um, challenging the maps if the composition of the court changes. So I think that's kind of the justification for the subtitle. Dan Kaufman, you begin your article, which came out two days ago. I want to thank you for getting it to me. Uh, you begin your article uh, with the 2011 Republican redistricting of the state's legislative districts as, as a means of assuring a political hold at the expense of, of former Democratic voting districts. Start there. Talk about that some and walk us through some of that. Sure. Um, well, this was part of a project that was being carried out by the Republican State Leg uh, Leadership Committee that was promoted by Karl Rove. Dave Daly wrote a great book called Rat F, uh, asterisk, asterisk, ED, about this whole, <laughs> um, this whole project. And Wisconsin was part of that. And it came out through discovery, all of the shenanigans that were involved in it. It was done, the redistricting was done at Michael Beston. Frederick, a law firm across the street from the Capitol in a locked wing. Uh, legislators, Republican legislators were only shown their district and they were forced to sign. They had to sign non-disclosure agreements, secrecy agreements. So the, the process was completely closed off to the public, which is, to me, one huge egregious affront to Wisconsin's tradition of open government. Um, in that map, they, they mapped dozens of scenarios and they chose the most extreme partisan gerrymandering. They tried to squeeze as many districts as they possibly could by two methods, cracking and packing. Packing is when you basically put all of the Democratic votes in as tight a uh, district as possible. And cracking is when you do with uh, what happened in Sheboygan, which is where I focus the piece. They basically cut the town in half. It had been an old labor city the longest strike in American history was there at the Kohler plant from 1954. And in the aftermath of that, it became increasingly democratic with some exceptions, um, but largely democratic, whereas the 27th Assembly District was largely uh, Republican. That was the surrounding areas. So since then, both districts, they got two districts out of Sheboygan. And one of the protagonists in the piece a very dynamic woman named Mary Lynn Donahue was one of the plaintiffs on a case that became called um, Whitford versus Gill. Bill Whitford, a prominent law professor in Madison, was the lead plaintiff. And it went, it actually won in federal court. There were two Republican appointed judges, and it was the first partisan uh, gerrymandering case to win in three decades. And there, they had incredible amount of empirical evidence, a guy named Nick um, Stephanopoulos had developed a way to quantify the amount of packing and cracking by measuring the wasted votes. And so that was a, a very strong, compelling argument to this federal court that basically people's constitutional rights were being violated as Democrats because it was so extreme. There was virtually no way for the Democrats to win a majority in either the state assembly or the state senate. And then that case went to the U.S. Supreme Court and it was thrown out for lack of standing. And then shortly afterwards, the court said, we can't decide partisan gerrymandering issues. Uh, you have to take it back to your states. And that brings us back to the court this election, because what has held the Republicans, the Wisconsin State Supreme Court has been an essential ena enabler of minority rule in the state. And that is why this election, which could change the ideological balance of the court, is so critical to changing not just the court, 
but the whole Wisconsin political landscape, because if the gerrymandering is re-examined, the composition of the state legislature will invariably change. So, You're listening to journalist Dan Kaufman, writes for the New Yorker magazine as well as other uh, vehicles. Uh, we're talking about his recent piece, A High Stakes Election in the Midwest's Democracy Desert, focusing, of course, on the race for the state Supreme Court. Jump a little bit forward from your, your, in your narrative. In 2021, the Republican-controlled state legislature and Democratic Governor Tony Evers each proposed new uh, district, district maps, which were required, of course, every, uh, by law every 10 years. Talk about that. The governor's maps were based on models from a nonpartisan uh, redistricting agency. Uh, the Republicans weren't. Right. The Republicans were basically the 2011 maps with some adjustments to that to minimize areas that were trending Democratic. And in fact, you could see. So I'll, I'll kind of compress this court battle. So those initial maps, the Wisconsin State Supreme Court kind of invented a novel standard that they had to represent the least change to the 2000 and 11 maps, which was a novel idea. And I quote the dissent by Rebecca Dowett, who said it basically perpetuates the political agenda of politicians who are no longer in power. You're basically frozen in 2011 because that and that initial gerrymandering was intensely partisan. And the court, the majority, which said you have to apply this least change um, method said it was kind of like they were presenting them, their argument as being one of modesty. Like it's this is an apolitical decision, they said. And it uh, I remember just as an aside, it reminded me of something William Brennan, the former Supreme Court justice, said about originalism and textualism. This is the kind of foundation of the right wing kind of judicial philosophy. And he said he called it arrogance cloaked as humility, which I thought was such a great description, this kind of judicial modesty, we're not doing anything. But in, in fact, they, it's intensely partisan um, because they're preserving an unfair partisan advantage. So Governor Evers's maps were rejected. Um, however, the governor went back and using relying on the Voting Rights Act, uh, he made some tweaks. In fact, his map was the, the least, less, fewer changes than the Republicans. And he wanted to accommodate the growth of the African-American community in Milwaukee. So there was like an added assembly district in Milwaukee and uh, and a few other changes. Uh, and Hagedorn sided with the governor. The Republicans made an emergency appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Again, this brings us back to why Wisconsin is so central. This decision, which was made through their shadow docket, which is like, unsigned, there's no hearings, there's no testimony, uh, said, you can't be using this standard. They threw them back. And essentially, most people think that this was a signal that they will gut the Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which is really the last um, effective part of that bill. So now we're stuck with the Republicans. Uh, I mean, what's happened is the Republicans' original map which gave them in 2022 a supermajority in the state Senate and within two votes of a supermajority in the state assembly, which means they could overturn any of Evers's vetoes. So it shows you that it even got even more extreme. And that is what is at stake. I mean, they were able to squeeze out a bit more um, and uh, the Democrats were only able to barely hang on to a veto in the assembly. So that's the background to that. And now um, that's, again, why the stakes of this election are so huge. Again, you're listening to journalist Dan Kaufman talking about, well, the ongoing battle for a seat on the Wisconsin State Supreme Court. We'll open up the phones, as I often do, always do, at half past the hour at 608 Two five six two thousand and one extension nine. 
Uh, <clears throat> if you have a question, a comment, an observation, and join in the conversation here, again, 608-256-2001, extension 9. Dan, let's talk about, I want you. I want you to talk about the importance of the state courts at various levels based upon recent developments, decisions that were made and, or not made. Um, you know, if, if you watch the campaign ads, which we'll talk about in a bit, um, you would think that the only issue is so-and-so is soft on crime, letting, letting criminals out, or, or, you know, Kelly is said to have been, you know, a um, he defended monsters. Well, lawyers defend all sorts of people, uh, but that's sure. that's the narrow focus, right? But talk talk about some of this. The um, this Wisconsin Supreme Court, how it's played a central role in an ongoing uh, effort to overturn states' democratic norms. We've talked about that, uh, but but go on with a little bit some of these instances. Sure. One recent example is the decision to outlaw drop boxes, which are perfectly safe. Uh, and that's a huge change. And, and in her opinion, Rebecca Bradley said, you know, compared Wisconsin's 2020 elections to those conducted by uh, Kim Jong-il of North Korea. I mean, it was a, a really quite a remarkable um, statement. So that's a huge um, change that communities will no longer be able to do use drop boxes. There was an additional change in that law that I think got overturned in federal court where disabled voters would have to um, personally place the uh, their ballot in uh, a mailbox. And I talked about that in an article I wrote last year, and that's very difficult for a lot of people. Um, so this is these are ways in which they've changed. They they let stand uh, a 20 the Walker's um, voter ID bill, which has really impacted the. Uh, ability of college students and minority groups to vote. I mean, it's it's definitely there's been studies by Ken Mayer that have showed it has an impact, and you can see kind of lower turnout in Milwaukee over the past several elections. And a lot of people speculate. I don't know if there's been any empirical study yet that that is due to um, voter ID laws. Another example that's really a democratic norm is typically when. Um, a state appointed official, when their term is expired, they would leave office. However, there was a gentleman named Fred Prane who was appointed to be the head of the Department of Natural Resources by Scott Walker in 2015. That's a six year term, so his term expired, but he refused to step down. And he did this colluding with um, Scott Walker, Republican legislators and industry lobbyists. And that had a hugely consequential effect on a couple areas. He enlarged the wolf hunt quota and probably more uh, widespread issue is he um, did not, he voted against establishing um, uh, groundwater standards uh, for PFAS, what they call forever chemicals. And there's communities in um, northern Wisconsin, like Peshtigo near Marinette, that have had huge problems with um, these chemicals polluting their water and they're desperate for a remedy. And the Department of Natural Resources is kind of was overtaken by this person that was basically squatting on the job. So I think those are instances where it has a really profound policy effect. Another one, I'll just quickly, in 2015, they ended abruptly a criminal investigation into alleged illegal coordination between Republican politicians and dark money groups that was conducted by the Milwaukee DA and the Government Accountability Board. And they essentially retroactively legalized what had been illegal. Uh, and bizarrely, they ordered the prosecutors to destroy all the evidence in the case. Fortunately, someone leaked a partial set of documents to The Guardian, and it revealed um, quite astonishing things like apparent quid pro quo payments to legislators for um, immunity from like lead point lead paint poisoning claims. And this was done by uh, the owner of a company that had used to manufacture lead paint. So these are really important things that aren't always visible, but really impact the ordinary lives of Wisconsin's citizens. But I think the key issues in this race are definitely the gerrymandering and abortion. 
which is, as you know, the state is currently being operating under an 1849 law that essentially criminalizes abortion, except in the case to save the life of a mother. Um, and it, there's, as I mentioned in the piece, there's no state operating under something more strict than Wisconsin's law. Can you take that further, uh, the, that the outcome of this uh, Supreme Court race is nearly certain to decide the future of abortion access in the state? I mean, you touched on it. Well, I think it will be determined by... Well, I think it will be determined by the results of this election. I mean, the the argument that Attorney General Josh Call has made is twofold. One, um, people weren't giving given enough time to prepare for this. And the other is that um, there are superseding laws, that laws that were passed later that regulated abortion, including some fairly significant restrictions on abortion, like 24-hour waiting period and so on and so forth. Um, And those, because they were passed after, they supersede this 1849 law, which as many people pointed out was before germs were known to cause disease. It was 70 years before women were even allowed to vote. So I think it's quite bizarre that the the operating um, standard is a law that um, really bears very little relation to the modern world. But that is, of course, what the right to life movement would like to enshrine. And um, and I think whatever the case is, it will be determined by the, case, by, by the upcoming election. Again, Dan Kaufman, if you want to join us with a question, a comment, an observation, give us a call at 608-256-2001, uh, extension 9. Uh, Dan Kaufman, I, I I thought one of the marvel, uh, marvelous quote you you used in utilized in the piece was that of uh, Scott Walker, who last month last month said that the former the former government told National Review that everything in quotes is on the line in this election. This is their chance to undo everything that we've done uh, over the past dozen years. That's that sums it up marvelously. Again, 608-256-2001, extension 9. I think the stakes on the right, they're keenly aware that the stakes are equally high and there's a sense of desperation um, on their side. And I think you look back at Act 10 and the early deliberations. Act 10 went before the state Supreme Court several times on different issues. The first one was the open meetings law, and then there was another case in 2014. And both times the court played a really decisive role in upholding that law, which has probably done more than anything, in my opinion, to alter Wisconsin's past, I mean, to uproot it um, and turn it into a kind of Southern style state with very small, uh, I think the state has lost almost 50% of its labor union membership since Act 10. And then subsequently it paved the way for a so-called right to work law to be passed in 2015 you know, Walker famously said, we're going to use divide and conquer. Uh, first, we'll attack the public sector unions and then the private sector ones. So, yeah, I think Walker framed it uh, very well. And I think both sides see it that way. And that's why you have this incredible flood of outside money, you know, um, which is another thing we could talk about. In 2003, when Pat Rogensack ran, there was $27,000 of outside money that was a different era now there's expected to be more than 40 million um but on both sides you know i mean you know not total but 40 million combined and both sides are generating huge sums you know let's talk about uh some of daniel kelly's background uh, i learned a great deal from your piece uh about who he has been and where he's been and uh well who he is Talk about talk about the, those those early moments. Nineteen eighty-eight, uh, in, enrolled in the Christian Broadcasting Network's law school, founded by the televangelist Pat Robinson, which became a Regent University School of Law. Talk talk about that. Totally, yeah. Well, it's really interesting. Um, Dan Kelly grew up outside Denver and moved to Wisconsin to go to Carroll College, a small Christian school in Waukesha County, I believe. Um, 
And then he applied to go to Pat Robertson's school, which is very new at the time. It was basically built on the, the remains of Oral Roberts' law school, which had folded a couple of years earlier. So a lot of faculty were brought to Pat Robertson's university. And he had an, a goal in mind, which is to infiltrate secular society. I quote his authorized biographer. That was what he said. And at the time that Kelly enrolled, it was not accredited at all, actually. Um, and in 1991, by the time he graduated, uh, received provisional uh, accreditation. However, uh, when Kelly was there, you can really get a glimpse of his kind of worldview, which is really rooted in religious thinking. Um, he wrote in the inaugural issue of the law review at the school, you know, a piece where he he basically dismissed the idea that the law was a man-made, human-made creation, that it really comes from God and it's impressed upon mankind. So I think that gives a really strong sense. And through issue after issue, he's kind of married a kind of religious quality with um, some old-fashioned libertarianism. In the piece, I also talk about how he compared Social Security and Medicare to slavery, indentured servitude, because uh, essentially a version of Mitt Romney's takers and, you know, that people, as I think he put it, um, that haven't set aside enough assets to retire. Um, basically, the other people are bailing them out and it's sort of against their will. Um, so he doesn't have a very community minded um, that, you know, at least around social welfare issues. Um, and then he went on to be on the court. Um, he was appointed by Walker in 2016, he had no judicial experience. He was appointed over two other judges. And um, he his first majority opinion was to prevent Madison buses from being allowed to, uh, from barring Madison buses from pro prohibiting loaded firearms uh, on their buses. And he wrote a 50 page opinion that began, included a really long pan to the second amendment. And uh, it really wasn't necessary. It was a kind of statutory question. Walker had passed a concealed carry law. And that was what the issue at hand was. But he used it as an opportunity to talk in glowing terms about the importance of the Second Amendment and so on. And then he lost in 2020 quite badly to Jill Karofsky by 11 points. He claims that it was because the Democratic primary with Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden was happening that same day and it drove Democratic turnout. And I think, you know, the question will only be decided uh, on the 4th, whether he's right or not. Dan Kaufman, we had, uh, had a caller that phoned in, uh, a DNR employee that simply wanted to clarify that Fred, oh, Fred Prenn wasn't, the head, right? wasn't the head of the DNR. He was the chair of the, chair of the board. The chair of the board. I'm <laughs> sorry. You know, when you're on the radio, you know, it's like you don't have a live fact checker. Thank you for the clarification. <laughs> I, I think I realized that when I, uh, when I said it. I'm sorry. Yeah, he's, the caller's right. You know, uh, looking in, in my notes here, uh, g going back one second to uh, when Kelly was edited the inaugural issue of the Regent University Law, Law Review, I just want to, this quote uh, I, I found kind of phenomenal. Uh, Kelly said, we believe that God's law has something to say about every area of law, he wrote. And it, <clears throat> today, it is popular to argue that law is nothing but a humanly created instrument Law originates with God and is impressed on his creation, including mankind. Um, I think Sharia, but 608-256-2001, extension It's a very extreme view. And I mean, that was written a while ago, to be fair. But I think he, he criticized um, Jennifer Doro. Oh, God, I'm, I'm a little bit... Uh, the specifics are a little bit hazy right now, but one of the things he was upset about her and why he chose to not pledge to endorse her if she won was because um, he did not, uh, she uh, talked only about how she would, that the laws were not coming from God, only if laws were violating the constitution, would she. Um, and so he really, it still is very important to him, and I think shapes his worldview. On the other hand, you have kind of he's he's um, he was on the advisory board of 
the Wisconsin Institute for Liberty, which was has been funded by the Bradley Foundation and other uh, kind of conservative donors, uh, an advisory board. It's it's probably the most consequential law firm in the state, and it's been central to transforming the state by bringing lawsuits around, you know, voting issues or labor or so on or private, you know, private school vouchers and so on to the court. And um, Kelly is very connected to that world. He um, he was the president of the Milwaukee uh, Federalist Society, and um, he is a very pugnacious um, candidate, proud of that. I heard him a couple times say, you know, what did the Irish like to do? They fight. And he's Irish-American, and he was, um, you know, kind of casting himself as a champion of this constitutionalism and textualism. And again, I always come back to William Brennan and it's like, if we could all read the same document and come to the same conclusion, it's funny because even on the right, there's ma major differences about what that even means. And, you know, I, to me, I just cannot understand how one could think, and there's a kind of hubris involved to think that you could go back and figure out what people were intending to do in 1849 based on what we know. It just doesn't make any rational sense. We have principles through these constitution and our and these documents that obviously need to be applied. And they're applied if Daniel Kelly says, I'm just going to project onto 1849, or they're applied if Rebecca Dalit says, I'm going to interpret the spirit of this and rule that we're, we're not giving people one person, one vote with these maps. And that is essentially the basis of her critique so anyway yeah that's a bit about kelly probably you know sorry to go on <laughs> um jade our producer tells me that we have a caller david uh with a Hello? question david hi you're on the air oh yeah hi um back uh two years ago uh when january 6th happened one of the uh, uh scams that trump was trying to do was to do the fake electors and Pence was supposed to uh, refuse to accept the Wisconsin slate and uh, accept the fake electors. Now, there's a, a magazine called the Louisiana uh, Illuminator. Uh, I think it goes by LAIlluminator.org. And it gives the list of the fake electors. Andrew Hitt, the chairman of the Republican Party, uh, Kelly Rue, uh, alderperson in De Pere, Carol Bruner, vice chairman of Wisconsin's 1st Congressional District, uh, GOP, Edward Scott Grabens. Have any of these people been prosecuted? There, there were 10 of them. I could go through the whole list. Pam Travis, Gerald so, Carlson. Okay, we, we got it, caller. Thank you. Yeah, um, they, there was a case brought by Law Forward, which is a nonprofit progressive law firm in Madison. And I'm not sure the status. I think it was thrown out recently. Bob Spindell was another one uh, who was the chair of the fourth congressional Republican Congressional Caucus. Um, but yeah, these people are known. They're, the fake documents, the quasi-legal documents that were sent were uh, are available on American Oversight, this um, a kind of watchdog group that um, got them through the open records request from all the states across the country. And you can see who they all were and they were all Republican Party officials. And it's interesting, you know, with Andrew Hitt, because it came out in his testimony before the January 6th committee that um, he had consulted with Daniel Kelly um, prior to the meeting at the state capitol over the electors. Uh, he was hired as Kelly was hired as general counsel counsel for the Republican Party. So, um, yeah, it's it's uh, really interesting. And I know Jeff Mandel of um, Law Forward was bringing a case about it. I'm not sure of the status of it. And you could probably find out more by going on their their website. Um, but, yeah, there was a case around that issue. We have about, oh, say, 15 minutes left in the hour. If you want to get in with a question or a comment and observation for our guest today, Dan Kaufman, once again, give us a call at 608 Two five six two thousand one, uh, extension uh, number nine. Dan Kaufman, you pointed out that the U.S. is one of the only countries in the world. This is, I learned something; <laughs> never thought, even thought about it before. That the U.S. is one of the only countries in the world 
to hold judicial elections, and that these elections are increasingly dominated by dark money groups. Talk about the funding of the campaign on both sides. Right, right. Well, um, there's a lot of dark money on both sides. And Matt Rothschild, who's head of the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign, spoke about it. And he's, he's troubled by it because the state has had a long tradition of clean, transparent elections uh, with very little money being spent. That was part of our political heritage. Um, but on the right, you know, I think at some point, uh, as I say in the piece, Jeff Mandel, I think, says that you know, they, they, they keyed in. State courts are very powerful and they can do a lot. And they've started to um, really focus on them. In 2014, uh, the Republican Party, state party, national state party, um, organized something called the Judicial Fairness Initiative, which has been supporting um, Supreme Court candidates in Ohio and in North Carolina. And in fact, they flipped the North Carolina State Supreme Court with immense consequences for gerrymandering and abortion. And then on the left, you have a lot of outside money as well. Um, I would say in this campaign, um, the biggest funder on the right, the most important one, is Richard Uline. And in fact, Kelly spoke about that. He hasn't raised a lot of actual money for his campaign, but he spoke about it at an event I heard him where he kind of alluded to this outside money, um, which he's not allowed to coordinate with, but he, as he put it, uh, I read in the papers like everybody else that I, I, you know, I'll have enough funding to be competitive. I'm paraphrasing, but uh, Uline gave six million dollars to um, uh, to Ron Johnson, and he's giving he's probably given eight million dollars so far to Kelly's campaign through this Fair Courts. Uh, I think it's called Fair Courts America. It's a pack that he is largely responsible for. Um, on the liberal side, there's a Better Wisconsin Together and other groups. And there's a lot of um, national, Ben Wickler has been very successful at organizing a national effort for Wisconsin politics. And you see a lot of celebrities, you know, like Julia Louis-Dreyfus and so on and so forth, uh, weighing in and fundraising and so on. Ben is, of course, the uh, head of the state Democratic Party. So, yeah, it's become uh, a sea of money, um, you know, very little of it from the state itself. But you can see the importance of the office by all of that money pouring in and how it will shape not only the state's political future, but the country's. Um, let's go back to the phones. We have a caller, Sarah, waiting on the line. Hi, Sarah. You're on the air. Hi, Alan. Thanks for this program. This well, hi, Sarah. Well, this, this may not be exactly what you're talking about right now, but the people who claim to be Republican, that is, in the Republican Party, they aren't Republicans. In fact, they are reactionaries. They react. They don't have a program, as we know it. We don't, you know, I, I hate to use the word ideology or, or ideas. They don't have ideas. They just react to whatever is said. Thanks. Or thought. <laughs> Soon it'll be thought. We could probably debate that, Sarah. The uh, it, it appears uh, certainly at some levels that they're very clear in their uh, agenda and, and and a worldview. Dan Kaufman, a comment. Um, I would say, yeah. I I just would say that Sarah, I noticed. The, the, the Republican Party in the state has changed a great deal and it is being shaped by larger forces. And I use an example, a guy that was in my book, a Republican state senator named Dale Schultz, who voted against Act 10 and also voted against the mine being built by the Bad River um, Reservation in northern Wisconsin. And Dale kind of represented a more of a kind of pre- the, the pre-nationalization of the state's politics sort of Republican where he listened to his constituents. And I remember he went to an event and they were like in, in he's in Richland Center around Act 10. And he said there were 500 against it and two people for it. So he kind of, he listened to his constituents in, in sort of key areas. And he was 
essentially hounded out of the party. Um, you know, and I think that kind of person, and I think that's also a reflection of the gerrymandering where the only real challenge to some of these Republican legislators is uh, from a primary, from somebody further on the right. You saw Trump endorsed a um, opponent of Robin Voss that was like a writing candidate and came within a few hundred votes of unseating him. Um, so that is really the only kind of challenge in a lot of these districts. And I think that kind of challenge moves people really, really to very, very far extremes. You know, they just prevented uh, the governor from imposing uh, vaccinations on meningitis, which, you know, seems to me a pretty clear reflection of how radical um, the party has become. And I think that is a function of the gerrymandering because there's they, they really are impervious to elections. So I want to come back to this this whole issue of dark money and outside money uh, funding. Uh, well, campaigns such as well run for a, a state supreme court um you, you mentioned richard uline um previously for our listeners that might not be familiar who is he richard uline is the owner you know you've probably gotten packages with uline boxes or packaging material that he he founded that company um and is the owner of it and he's become an incredibly um he's a billionaire um many times over and he's become an incredibly important funder for state Republicans all over, but particularly in Wisconsin. He's from Ellen. He's based in Illinois. Um, but as one buddy, as one source told me in the piece, uh, he said Dick Uline is the Republican Party now, <laughs> Wisconsin Republican Party now. He was kind of being euphemistic, but he's given, as I described, so much money, uh, and essentially kept Ron Johnson's campaign. You know six million dollars more than that so they was clearly consequential as far as that uh, which was pretty narrow victory so he's been an incredibly important force on the right for the wisconsin republican party another group that's very powerful is the wisconsin manufacturers and commerce uh and that has been a powerful business lobby for a long time interestingly enough they actually wrote they drafted the recusal rules for state Supreme Court justices. I mean, they literally drafted them uh, in 2009, I think. And that, and it's very, as you can imagine, favorable to uh, not requiring recusals, um, which would possibly impact the balance of power if, for example, one of their members comes before the court with an issue over corporate malfeasance or something like that. So uh, these groups are, are incredibly, incredibly important and have been it's interesting because in some ways the um, they've been neutralized to a degree because the uh, Democrats have largely caught up and liberals have largely caught up, not entirely, but um, but there 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 is a more of a parity than there used to be. We're getting toward the end of the wire. We have time if some if any of you would like to get in with a quick question or a comment. Uh, Repeat the, the phone number again. It's 608-256-2001, uh, extension number nine. I found it interesting, you know, staying with, with Protosavitz's campaign for a second, that uh, it, it has outspent Kelly by $9 million on television ads alone. Um, just uh, c- quite something that... Uh, these races have become so expensive, and at some level, uh, you have to question how all that spending ends up, in, in some sense, turning people off, excluding people, narrow, narrowing the turnout. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Alan. It's it's quite shocking, and it, and it's kind of, you know, most of the campaigns now are just warring television ads. I was lucky to see both candidates in small venues and that was interesting to see them interact with voters um but i think you know thinking back on wisconsin's heritage bob lafala used to drive around in the back of a wagon and could speak extemporaneously for five hours at a time you know in small towns like mineral point and i think that was part of our political not only culture but education and i do find it sort of tragic that most of the information that people are able to consume or consume their people are busy they're working 
are through these 30 second spots, which are incredibly misleading most of the time um, or else very glowing and cursory. But there's very little room for like real depth. And Wisconsin always had a really proud kind of citizen driven tradition that unfortunately I think is being subsumed somewhat by all of this flood of dark money, which basically goes to ads, you know? Um, and I think that's, that's sort of sad for our, our culture. I mean, I, I remember growing up and just so many just ordinary citizens were so versed and maybe they still are. Um, but, uh, but that was really special, you know, to, to, to have that kind of knowledge about our civic government and our culture and so on. You know, we, we're getting down toward uh, beginning the approach to close of the hour. I'm curious, of course, about your current read on the race, on the sup- state Supreme Court race as April 4th draws near. It's getting increasingly nasty. I mean, you could see it in the debate last week. You know, Kelly has taken to calling Protasewicz a serial liar, and uh, she's called him a true threat to democracy. Um, and they're kind of trying to uncover some... It's getting very personal and very nasty and very ugly. Um, and they're throwing a lot of mud at her that uh, it seems very, you know, dubious. There's articles about in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. I won't digress too much, but... Um, oh, do. I think it... <laughs> well, <laughs> Well, I, you know, it's not, it wasn't so, that's not the heart of what I think what I wanted to do and what I always try to do in journalism is to try to show how these elections intersect and interact and impact the lives of ordinary citizens. So as much as possible, I try to center my reporting around those. And two of the main protagonists is one is an abortion doctor, uh, OBGYN, uh, named Kristen Lyerly, and the other is a, a Mary Lynn Donahue, who is an activist in Sheboygan and actually ran for assembly herself. So I think, um, you know, the campaign itself, I could just generalize and say it's getting really personal, really ugly. And I think that's a sense of the stakes, you know, and it's going to continue to get that way for the next several days. Um, I, I don't see I think it'll just escalate, if anything, you know, with these kind of personal attacks. Uh, do you have any sense uh, of which way it's gonna gonna go? Uh, have you been following recent polls or, or opinions? Uh? There aren't really any polls. Charles Franklin uh, told me they don't really poll it. The Marquette University Law School, which is really the best state's best poll, um, doesn't really poll. There are internal polls. I think they mostly show Protasewicz anywhere from like two to six points ahead. But I think that could mean anything in Wisconsin. And a lot of it, I think, will depend on turnout in Milwaukee in particular, also in Dane County. But, you know, if she can, uh, Jill Karofsky won by 11 points and she won, she reclaimed virtually all of the Driftless area counties, which historically had been progressive. Uh, That's Western Wisconsin. And I think she um, showed that there could be I don't know. It could go either way. It could be a landslide or very tight nail biter. I think a lot will also depend on the Milwaukee suburbs, which have been trending away from the far right. And I think particularly with the abortion issue, that may be a turnoff uh, for some of those voters that that Kelly is strongly aligned. He's done work for Wisconsin Right to Life, and um, he's, in fact, endorsed by a group that also uh, supports banning contraception. Um, so he's he's firmly aligned at camp, although he will say that he hasn't made up his mind about anything. But, you know, take it for what you will. So that kind of brings us back to where we started. Uh, that subtitle of, of your piece, the national implications of the uh, outcome, whatever it may be. Talk about maybe take a little deeper uh, what the outcome could mean for the rest of the country? Well, I think if the maps were to change, it would maybe also, that could uh, inspire a wave of a kind of refocusing on fair districting. Um, it would certainly change Wisconsin's political makeup hugely, even if the Republicans retain a majority. Again, gerrymandering affects the ideology 
particularly on their side, um, because, you know, people are being driven further and further to the right. There's no incentive at all for compromise uh, when you know the other side will only get 39 votes. So I think, you know, could change uh, Wisconsin's politics in the, in the very near future. And I think as far as the country goes, you know, the 2024 election is just around the, the corner. I, com I see Wisconsin once again as being right at the center. It's a very evenly divided state. Um, and I think it will be in 2024. And I would, I think, you know, you're probably betting even money if the, whatever the results are, don't wind up before the Wisconsin state Supreme Court, you know? So I think there's huge implications. Um, and I just encourage everyone to vote you know, uh, look at the facts and decide whom you want to vote for. Well, Dan Kaufman, uh, we have a minute or so left. A final word for our listeners? Sure. Um, it's always nice to return uh, on these reporting trips. I think one thing that I always find inspiring about Wisconsin is the commitment of the ordinary citizen to kind of reclaiming the state's ideals. And I saw that um, both with uh, Mary Lynn Donahue and Kristen Lyerly, who were deeply connected to the ideas that um, were prevalent really on both in both parties for a long time. You know, people forget that it was a Republican governor that expanded collective bargaining rights for public employees. And I think that um, is always a hopeful sign for me when people uh, remember that our society can be more democratic, lowercase d, and ordinary citizens can have a voice and can be involved and shape their uh, state and their communities in a meaningful way. Well, we're getting right down to it. I want to thank you ever so much, uh, Dan Kaufman. You've been listening to Dan Kaufman. He's a journalist and author of the just-published New Yorker magazine article entitled A High-Stakes Election in the Midwest's Democracy Desert about what's going on with the Supreme Court race uh, in Wisconsin. He's also the author, and you should check it out. I recommend it. <laughs> the 2018 title, The Fall of Wisconsin, The Conservative Conquest of a Progressive bastion in the future of American politics. Again, I want to thank you, Dan. I want to thank, uh, thank Jade, our producer, Chuck, our engineer. I want to thank you, our listeners, our couple of callers. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week. Thank you, Alan. It's a pleasure.